questions, and it's um, maybe they're a little hesitant to ask. So I hope if you did have any, yeah. What the Dharma says about illness? Well, I mean, that's a pretty broad question. It's a big question. Um, it actually opens up a lot, so I'll just say a few things. And maybe it might open up other discussion, and other people may have something to share also. Um, so... The Buddha or the Dharma on any topic, whether it's illness or anything, there's a couple of different um, levels on which things are talked about. Sometimes we talk about trying to just give a statement of how things are. The Buddha would say this is the nature of things. And sometimes when people give Dharma talks, we tend to kind of give those teachings. And other times it's more about in the face of how things are, such as illness, how are we to work with them? What are we to do? Um, and so there's and Dharma talks. If you if you've been around much, you'll you'll or you know, or if you start to come around, you'll see that there'll be those in any uh, topic. There'll be those two kinds of Dharma talks. One is they'll sort of recount some of the teachings, and other styles of Dharma talks really are much more about. Um, practice and how, how to deal with things. So maybe I'll just say something from both angles. It, it's really a big Dharma question, and it's really uh, the, the, the question on illness is really a very, it's similar to the question of what do we do about life in general. Um, so to back up a bit before getting specific, um, the Buddha pointed out over and over, and we don't need the Buddha to point this out to us. We can just see in our own lives. You know, people think that Buddhism often, they think that it, you know, it just dwells on suffering because the Buddha is often quoted, this is not accurate, but, you know, it says that life is suffering. People have probably heard that. And that's not exactly accurate. Um, And sometimes uh, people view Buddhism as being a pessimistic religion. But it doesn't view itself actually as pessimistic. It would view itself, it would tend to look at itself as realistic. Because it doesn't say there's only suffering. It acknowledges all the the good stuff in life, happiness and pleasure and all of that. But this word that gets used a lot, and you'll hear this word if you haven't heard it, is dukkha. And you don't have to memorize any of these Pali words, really. Pali was the language in which some of the earliest uh, of the Buddhist teachings was recorded in. But dukkha is a good word if you're going to learn any words. Dukkha is a good one. And that's the word that often is translated as suffering. But that's actually not a very uh, good translation. And if you had to pick one word... I think a much better word would be, I don't know if this is actually a word, but unsatisfactoriness. Is that a word, unsatisfactoriness? <laughs> what it says is, is that life, life is life. It's got its ups, it's got its downs. Sometimes we're, and we, and we all know this, right? Sometimes 
life's going along well. Sometimes it's just difficult in spite of our best efforts and our attempts to have life be how we want it to be. It is what it is. And part of that is sometimes there's outright suffering like illness, which we're, and we are going to get, I'm going to come a little more specific, but I just want to kind of lay this groundwork here. You know, sickness, death, you know, you break your leg, you know, just the actual overt pain and suffering. There's mental, emotional suffering that we can have. But in addition to that, there's another level to dukkha which says, um, it actually says that everything is dukkha, unsatisfactory, even the good stuff. And what they mean by that is because things are impermanent, even the pleasant doesn't last, right? That's bad news if we're trying to hold on to something that we want. It's good news if we're faced with something we don't want, right? That gets a little tricky if you're dealing with, say, an illness that looks like it's, it's not an acute situation but more of a chronic situation. That's a different kind of situation. Dukkha. The point that Buddha's, the Buddha is making here is that there is no experience, even the best experiences, because they don't last, they can be satisfying for us in the moment or during a period of our lives. But they're not going to be ultimately satisfying because ultimately they will lose those experiences. That's this idea of dukkha. The reason it's important to think about that, you know, sometimes this, this is a common theme that's talked about over and over in Dharma talks. Sometimes people will say, I've had people say, you know, raise their hand and say, well, yeah, well, what's the big, yeah, okay, you know, that's just life, so let's just get over it and move on. The reason that the Buddha taught that it was important to, to think about this, it's not that we're trying to be, we're not trying to get depressed or be morose or negative. But if we think about how most of us, probably actually I know very few people here, I know a few people, but most people here I don't know. But one thing I bet I can say accurately for everyone in this room, myself included, all of us as human beings, how is it that we tend to live our lives? How is it that we tend to seek our happiness? We tend to seek our happiness in trying to get those, those things, those situations, those experiences that we like that bring us happiness, right? Try to get more of the things we want. And we try to spend our lives trying to avoid situations or experiences or people or whatever that we don't like, that are unpleasant. And it just sounds kind of silly when you say that, but that's, how, that's really what we spend our whole lives doing. There's nobody here who's trying to get 
less of what they want and more of what they don't want, right? And people are laughing, but it's right. So there's nothing wrong with that. We're not going to stop doing that. Nobody's going to stop doing that. That's just part of being alive as a human being. It only gets to be a problem when we start grasping and clinging and holding on to things. We're not willing to let go. So I am not going to stop trying to, you know, you know, more money is better than less money, right? A good relationship better than a bad or whatever it is for each of us that we, you know. It's going to be different for each of us. We're not going to stop trying to set up our lives and and live in a way leading us towards more happiness. And we're going to get what we get moment by moment. In the midst of, in the process of creating our lives, it's going to be what it is. And we only have so much control. The question that we're being asked then is, can we start to make a shift so that our happiness is not so much, not as much tied up in having a certain experience and not having a certain other experience? But can we start to make a shift so that our happiness is more, what is the relationship I'm having with the actual experience of my life now? And it's a different kind of happiness. You hear it's kind of a, a cliche to talk about, you know, inner peace, inner happiness through meditation. That's what it's pointing to. It's not pointing to that we're just going to create some kind of blissful, peaceful, calm state where there's no difficulties that arise. Those experiences can and do happen in meditation. And if you, for those of you who've been doing it for a while, you, will, you, you know you can have those kind of experiences. And for some people, that actually may be why they're meditating. And it's not, you know, we all are going to have our own reasons why we come to meditation. I would suggest that rather than trying to create some special state, whether it's in meditation or life, that's not going to last anyway. If we're working on this idea of learning to let go, to find a way to start, maybe to be a little more present with just the experience of life as it is. And the not not letting go is, is allowing it to flow, allowing life to be, allowing ourselves to be. We spend a lot of time, I'm making a generalization of saying we, but I think many of us spend a lot of time We think there's a certain way we have to be to be okay in the world, you know, how we have to show up in life as a person, how we have to be perceived by other people, right? We tend to put these outer kind of personas or our outer selves that we present to the world. Why do we do that? So we'll be seen or perceived a certain way, right? So we go through life where, you know, uh, my outer fake self is interacting with your outer fake self. and <laughs> I don't think I'm saying that to make a point. I'm not saying that that's the only thing, but that happens. Well, that's a lot of work. 
And it's painful. Right? As we start to let go, it's not only uh, allowing ourselves to be fully present just for the ex- outer experiences, but to let the, the, the experience of our own being just express. So we're doing a practice of learning to quiet our minds down, which takes some practice, as we know. When we first start off, the mind's not very quiet. And even after a long time, maybe <laughs> the mind has times when it's not so quiet. But we start to learn to quiet down enough Instead of being pulled off and at the effect of everything, where we can just be present and awake and clear in a deeper place. And we start to connect in with that deeper reality of who and what we are as beings. And so us all can start to be seen. Now, you should be aware, if you don't already know this, that uh, it's kind of a mixed blessing. Because as we do that, we're going to see everything. All the parts, the beautiful parts that maybe we weren't even aware of are known more. And the parts that maybe we didn't want to know were in there. Everything, the full expression of our being can be known. But once again, if we can learn to be present without this grasping and clinging and judging, we can more let life be as it is and let ourselves be what we are and be at peace with that. And more than at peace, actually, take a lot of joy. So, that sounds kind of nice in theory to me, right? Not clinging, not judging ourselves, letting life be. Not so easy to do all the time, especially in the difficulties. So, what do we do with illness? And I don't know what, you know, who knows what brought the question up, but I certainly know for myself, I can just give an example of... um, I had a, uh, I've been through some back and neck difficulties. I've gotten over it. Uh, I was fortunate. But I went through some time where I had some extended periods of time of uh, once at the time it was my back and I had this, I guess, this, this pain you know, shooting down my leg and it was quite intense and it was this nerve pain. Just the quality of it, it, just, it was just it was awful. And I had another neck injury and the same thing. There was several months where I was just in, in very intense pain didn't matter. I couldn't get in any posture or position that would alleviate the pain. Even if I was lying down, or it just didn't help. Pain medication didn't help. Well, sometimes I was able to kind of work with it and be present and let it be there, even though it was unpleasant and, 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 and let it be. But the truth is, there were times when I just couldn't. It was too painful. It was too difficult. I couldn't be with this. So my take on it about then specifically dealing with illness in the midst of sort of this bigger context about, uh, of, about letting go and about just this whole dukkha and impermanence and all these Dharma teachings is that first we need a combination of two things to meet any experience. And they work together. Mindful awareness and compassion come together. Mindful awareness and compassion. The mindful awareness is the part that is actually wakes up to and is aware of what's going on, whatever it is. Without that, we're just lost in the moment, lost in our experience. We're just on automatic pilot. And we don't, when we're on automatic pilot, as we know, we don't have any freedom or choice. We're just at the effect of the external conditions, 
and our conditioning of our mind and how we habitually react to things. So we're just going along according to habit. As we develop more mindfulness, we start to wake up in the midst of the flow of our lives. Just to be more awake, all of a sudden we have some choice, maybe. But we start to have the, the potential for more choice the more awake we can be in a moment. So it brings two things. That mindful awareness brings um, that awakeness so we have the choice of freedom, but it also makes us more aware so we experience everything more clearly than we ever did before if we were covering over. So in the case of an illness, we're more awake. Oh, illness. We not only feel it, we know we have it, but we're experiencing it more. So the unpleasant can be stronger there too. So it's kind of bringing up the choice of freedom, but also the more intense experiences. But it also makes us more aware of everything else. It makes us more aware of our aversion or our suffering, or how I can't be with this, or our despair, or whatever's going on, we're more awake with it. That's when we need the compassion part to come in. One time I was sitting in a meditation retreat. This was when my daughter was 17 years old, and it was her first meditation retreat, so I was wanted to sit it with her. And this is when I actually had, when I was telling about this neck injury, and it was awful. And it just happened a few days before, and I thought, well, I'm going to go to the retreat, and I'm just going to, it's just going to be experience arising, and I'm just going to use mindfulness, and yes, it's painful, but I'm just going to connect with it, and that'll just be, you know, be present for this pain. And I had this sort of idealized notion of what I was going to do. Well, it wasn't even close. The pain was so much, I had no choice or freedom. I was just crushed by it. And in that case, it was so strong, it went past my threshold or ability to be awake and clear and present. So in that case, it wasn't very skillful to try and laser beam concentration into the pain and connect with and feel it. No, what I needed there was the compassion side. The part that acknowledges, you know what, this is, it's too much. This is hard and it hurts and it's painful and I'm in despair, right? And I needed the compassion side. And I found that then when I could bring in more of the compassion and maybe have a, a bigger sense of things, then maybe after a long time I might then be able to come back at it with a little more mindful awareness, a little, and work with it. And then I could get more into the awareness, and then maybe I had to back back off. And so I think that, that combining the compassion, we all need a lot of compassion. We're all sufferers. Can I ask you a question? Can you talk a little bit about actual techniques for bringing compassion when you're physically sitting and having things come up? Yes, I will, just a moment. So I'm kind of going off in a whole Dharma talk here, <laughs> and I wanted to just get back to you. We're talking about illness. Is that he- helpful? Do you are you complete or? Yeah, it's helpful. Okay. Okay. So what do you actually do? How do we do it? Okay. Well, like anything, it is a practice. So it's just like. In regular meditation, if we sit down and say, and say, for example, you're working with your breath, 
We say, okay, you connect with your breath, right? Well, if you haven't developed your meditation, if you're newer or you haven't, you can see, well, the mind's not trained. We shouldn't expect that we're going to be able to stay with the breath. We're going to be lost and gone, and then 10 minutes later we're going to wake up and realize, oh, yeah, I've been lost off. I thought then we're going to come back again, and, it's, and we're not going to be that good at it. But it's like anything with practice. We keep using this word practice. It sort of develops that. It's just like going to the gym and working out. If you've never exercised, you can't go and lift heavy weights or do all these pull-ups or whatever it is because your muscles aren't conditioned. But you know that over time you work and you just at the pace that's appropriate and you will develop that and you'll naturally have more stamina and strength. And it's the same thing with the mind. We can cultivate and develop these qualities of mindfulness, of wakefulness. It's similar for anything we want to cultivate. Compassion is one of these. Um, And have you heard of, uh, do you know what they call the the Brahma-viharas? Have you ever heard that? Are there other people? Anyone here know that what's called the Brahma Viharas? Okay. Let me just say something and then we'll get more specific. In addition to these mindfulness and liberation and wakefulness kind of practices that the Buddha taught, he also taught another class of practices that were complementary, and he emphasized them a lot. Uh, this particular class is called the Brahma Viharas. The Brahma means like, uh, divine or heavenly or like the gods, if you will. And vihara just means dwelling place. So these are these four qualities. They're, they're, they're called the divine abodes or the dwelling places of the gods. The idea is that these are qualities that just raise us up to, it's like being like the gods. You know, I'm not necessarily saying literally, but we can take it that way because they're just bring us to the higher, if you want to use that word, it's a judgment higher or lower, but those kind of Qualities. Those four qualities are the first one is, um, I'll give you the Pali words, but that's not so important. But you'll hear a word a lot called metta. It's M-E-T-T-A, metta, which means loving kindness. We do practices actually to develop loving kindness. And we're actually going to end today with a little compassion and loving kindness practice. But So metta is a practice that we can take on as part of our daily practice that we can cultivate and develop. The second one, karuna, which is uh, compassion. Okay. The third one, mudita, which is sometimes translated as sympathetic joy, but it means actually finding happiness or joy in the happiness of, of others. That's kind of a tricky one. Right. Sort of the opposite of jealousy. You know. Yes, I've got a crappy life, but... You're happy, and I feel happiness because another in the face of my own difficulty. <laughs> I'm laughing because I think that's for many of us so challenging. It's really a radical um, concept for many people. That sympathetic joy that we can actually cultivate these, and the fourth uh, equanimity, Pali's upekka, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. If you don't remember these, don't worry. Uh, there are many lists in the Buddhist teachings, many many lists. You know, and so this is this four qualities, this one. You'll hear it many times. So what do we do? We actually can practice. And we'll do some tonight. We can actually, but, but just basic ideas is, is just to even try to bring a sense. You know, sometimes um, 
what I what I found worked for me sometimes is when I was um, I can just think back to some times when I've really just been in some of my own suffering. And for me, looking back in my life, my suffering has tended to not been so much around physical suffering in my life, but more, you know, I would get in despair or loneliness or those kind of sufferings. And I found some of the times, um, especially in my earlier uh, years, um, where just to feel kind of like, um, just like, wrapped in these, I want to say wrapped in the arms of God, but since we're Buddhists, I guess, I don't know if we're officially allowed to say that. <laughs> but just feeling like, um, so if you don't relate to that, don't, you know, don't. <laughs> uh, I, before I came into Buddhist practice for about 10 years, I was in more of a, really more of a Hindu-oriented yoga practice for about 10 years. And, um, you know, they're they're very comfortable using words like God and things like that. So that's kind of my background before I moved over into the Buddhist world. So I tend to use those words, but uh, we have to be careful of what we mean. But the idea basically is even just feeling connected with life. um, Maybe we don't even feel it, but maybe we're faking it. It's okay, but just try to... When we're meditating, we start off, we're faking it too. You know, we're sitting there and trying to be... And, you know, know, if people could see inside us, you know, it would... (laughs) I mean, isn't that true? People often come to meditations who are new. This is for any of you who are new. And you look around and everybody's like. And, you know, I remember when I first started, I've been practicing for, I don't know, about a little over 30 years. I first started, I would look around and I'd think, oh, man, like, look at them. They're just all like Buddhas and everybody's blissed out except me. And, you know, and everybody from the outside were all like this. And Jack Cornfield, you know, some of you have heard this because it's quite well known. He said, you know, if they, if they could invent a machine that could project our minds up and we could all see as we're all sitting like this, it would be a big dumping garbage dump up there with everything going on. So I'm just being a little humorous when I say we fake it. But, you know, we start where we're at. And one of the beautiful things, and this is really true. Actually, this is very important. There are some areas in life where we have real limitations, right? So, for example, um, when I was in high school, I ran on a track team. I was okay, but I wasn't great. And just no matter how much I put into it, I could be a decent runner, but just genetically, I was never going to set the world record. I was never going to run a four-minute mile. It's just, it was just a limitation in me. It's not a judgment about it, right? It's a real limitation. Right? We all can look at our lives and see some of us are, have, you know, um, you know I'm, I'm personally not that musical. I'm more of an engineering type person, right? So I could study learn, music practice, but you know what? Probably I'm not going to end up being a, a Mozart. There would be some limitation there, even though I could develop and grow. Maybe that's not a good example, but I'm just saying we can all look and see areas where we have limitations. There are certain areas where we literally have no limitations. It's true. The areas, when you think about it, the areas in which we have limitations, like our bodies, you could say, well, like if I'm going to become like, you know, I'm not going to be a Barry Bonds and be able to hit all these home runs. I don't have quite that reaction time, right? So those are the areas, getting back to this concept of dukkha, 
You know, if you were Barry Bonds and everybody just loves you and you're famous and you're rich and they're all cheering you, that would be pretty cool, right? It'd be great. It's not ultimately going to be satisfying. Ultimately, you get old or you die or whatever. It's, it's, a little, it's, it's, it's satisfying in a relative sense. doesn't mean don't do it. But just let's just be aware and put it in proper uh, context. That's all. So in these areas of the world, the areas that aren't ultimately going to be satisfying anyway, those are the areas, only areas we have limitations. The areas from a Dharma perspective of lo- those areas of life that are going to be more ultimately liberating and satisfying, no limitations. It doesn't matter if you can't concentrate right now, and it doesn't matter if you don't have much loving kindness in your heart, and it doesn't matter if you don't have much compassion and if you don't even know how to practice it for yourself. I am telling you from my own experience, I don't know what's ultimately possible, but I do know starting with where you're at, and the Buddha said this too, you can all discover this for yourselves, and some of you do know this. You don't have to be further along than you're at with it. It's just, it's fantastic. A mind full of hate, if the intention and the motivation is there to transform it, you may, not, you may have a mind full of hate and not want to transform it. Okay, that's fine. But if you want to transform it, can be utterly transformed. In the areas that are ultimately going to do you some good, there's no limitation to what you could do in your, I would say, in your practice. The ability to um, wake up, to cultivate some mindful awareness. It's just up to us, whatever we choose, we want to do there. In cultivating a heart of metta and compassion, The Buddha said the Dharma, I love this image, he says it's like a river that's flowing, you know, like, I don't know, Mississippi River, whatever, and eventually it reaches the ocean. And there's some times in the river where you can really see it moving, and there's other times when it gets so wide or so deep, it looks like it's not moving at all. There could even be certain times where, depending on the tides or whatever, it looks like it's flowing backwards. That can happen in rivers, some weird, you know, it happens, there's an earthquake and moves the water back. But if you get in that river, you will end up in the ocean. It can't be stopped, right? If you got a raft and got in the middle of the Mississippi River and sat there long enough, you will end up in the Mississippi River. Sometime you might hit the bank and get snagged up, but eventually, you know, break, you'll go down. It's the same thing in the Dharma. So if we want to cultivate any of these qualities, we can. So if you want to cultivate more compassion, we start just where we're at. We don't have to be more. We don't have to struggle against who we are. We don't even have to know how to do it. Just trying the practices and it grows and develops. It's just really great news. We'll do some practice. And there's a good book, um, Sharon Salzberg's book, uh, I think, is it called Loving Kindness, The Revolutionary Art of Happiness? Isn't that the title of her book? It would be a good one to look, look up on uh, de- work, de- developing uh, metta. I don't know if she goes through the all four Brahma Viharas, but definitely, if she goes through all four, she does, yeah. So that would be a great book on those practices. 
You could do them as practices. So this is good. I'm really glad people had some questions. You know, you can make a whole Dharma talk just, you know, on, any, on this stuff. One book I would recommend that just came out for any of you who are interested. Uh, some of you will know who Joseph Goldstein is, who's a very well-known um, Dharma teacher. And he just wrote a book. It just came out a couple of weeks ago called One Dharma. It's very re- readable, fast read. And he kind of works through it. it, it anyway, it's a really wonderful book. I would highly recommend it. And it touches on some of the, these topics. Sometimes the way we talk about the teachings, here we're talking about cultivating qualities, right? Like getting more mindfulness or more metta, loving kindness, more compassion. Now we have to be a little careful. That can imply, if we're not careful, that, oh, how I am is not okay. I've got to get there. See, I don't have much of this, but I've got to get more of it, right? So even when we talk in terms of cultivating certain qualities, it always starts, the bigger container, that compassion, is the big container that it all starts in, which is a, just a self-acceptance, full self-acceptance for how it is, as much as we can. And if we're not able to accept ourselves as we are, then we have to have some compassion for that. It's always starting with where we're at, not trying to get somewhere out of an aversion, like I'm not okay or I've got to get better. Starting with that full acceptance and then out of that, with deep self-acceptance, then we can, and really just almost let the natural unfolding occur. And then it's still, it gets less of trying to get somewhere. We can sort of, be here and still be growing in, in qualities that we, that we want to develop. Any comments or could be questions or maybe someone else has something to add or other topics? We don't have that much longer, but we have some time. Yes? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no. Yeah, he said. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that's a good answer too. No, that's absolutely right, and I'm glad you said that. It is very important what you're saying, that, and it, and it points to that. Um, you know, we want to take action in the world, and we want to do what's what's needed and useful and appropriate in all aspects of the world and all aspects of life. And to try to, if you, one way to say is cure it on, on whatever levels or all or any levels that need to be. Would you? Would that be accurate for what you're saying? Thing. You know, so many rules, we 
Right. Right. So I hope I wasn't. Yeah. Well, no, I completely agree with what you're saying. I'm glad you said that. I think it's important. And I just hope that that uh, the way, what I was saying, I'm assuming that, you know, if you've got an infection and you need antibiotics, you'll go to a doctor and get it. So I figured I didn't need to say that, <laughs> you know, at all. Well, I'm not sure what, what exactly you meant, but the way I was taking what you mean is is that, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, let me say how I took what you were saying, because what I thought he was saying is actually something that, that was very useful if I, if I was reading him right, which is, see, everything in the Buddhist teaching is it's called the middle path. It's a balance. If we get too extreme, so let's just take illness, for example, and if, we get, if, if we're out of balance on one extreme... It's we don't work with how to deal with it and how to face it. And it's all just I got to go to a doctor. I got to cure it. I got to take this. I got to fix it and everything. And we're too out of and 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 we're never dealing with these other levels of working with the actual experience of our life. And so we need to do some more of these dharma kind of approaches. If we get too out of balance the other way, which is just well, you need to just be present with what is. And if you get too out of that, then it's like. Well, yeah, but you're sitting there in pain. You know, take some pain medicine or, or, you know, you give yourself, you know, you need to treat it more on the conventional level. And I think what you were pointing to is that balance of what's, of really finding the place where they both, and if, if the Dharma teachings become a burden, like, oh, now I've got another thing I've got to remember, <laughs> then we're out of balance. If we can take them on as something that's another piece in our toolkit, then it's something that's not adding to suffering but relieving suffering. Is the, am I accurate in what you're saying? Absolutely, and, it's as, and it is as simple as that. And to the extent that, so, and, and believe me, I know for myself, if the pain's there and I can remove it, I want to remove the pain. Simple, I don't want to make a big, complicated, metaphysical kind of discussion about it. And I find for myself that I also want to work with ways of coming more into relationship with life on, on other levels too because sometimes you can't remove the pain and then what am I going to do? And I find that, uh, and by the way, that, I just want to point, there's a, there's a wonderful story. It's, more, it's not a, so much of a Buddhist story. I think it comes more out of the Hindu world where um, someone's standing on the, on the road and someone else comes running toward them yelling, you know, mad elephant, mad elephant. Get out of the way, mad elephant. And the person stands there and says, God will protect me. Mad elephant comes, runs, and tramples them and kills them. 
person dies, they're reborn in, and they're there with God and saying to God, they're in the heaven realm or whatever, saying to God, uh, I thought, you know, I, I don't understand. I had so much faith in you and I thought you would protect me. And God says, I was. I was running down the road yelling, get out of the way, <laughs> mad elephant. <laughs> so I take that as like, you know, we want to work on all levels. We don't, uh, that, that's useful. And really all of these teachings, the way that I would like to suggest that you hold all of them is, I, I take it kind of like the analogy I, I like to use is kind of like shopping for clothes. You go to the store, see something that looks interesting, take it off, try it on, see how it feels. If you don't like it, no big deal. You just put it back on the shelf, move on. So all of these teachings, you know, you see, and if it's causing more suffering, Okay, well, maybe either that's not the right path for us or maybe we need to work with our relationship with it. And if it's something that's helping in our lives, they continue on. And that's kind of the way I like to see to hold all of these Dharma teachings. It's, it's, and that's the balance. Yeah. So I think illness is going to be inevitable. So I think with the um, the eightfold path, or what we, if we do not want to hasten death, then what we should do is practice life and make illness not you know make it as not so much a bump in the road as you know. Once the illness has arrived, for, for whatever reason, it's the life that you've experienced before the illness that will carry you through the illness or not. No, that's absolutely true. And actually, listening to you talk, really, that was great. And um, I want to also say something that's so important. One word that I hope I was going to say should, you should never use, but, but that I hope you can throw out of your vocabulary is should. There's no should. I'm not saying you should be mindful or that you should be able to be present for your experience. There's no should. It's real simple. Anytime there's suffering, I'm not talking about unpleasant, but anytime we're suffering, there's a difference between something being not pleasant and, you know, pain and suffering are not the same thing, right? Is there anybody not clear about that? Okay. Could you clarify? Oh, sure. Um, something, because when we, if we, if we're in that, so you can certainly get to this in your meditation practice quite easily. Sometimes you can be sitting, and if you spend enough time, you know, maybe you start getting knee pain. That's a classic example we use because so many experience. You know, you sit in this fancy position, and your knees killing you, or your back's killing you. Well, here's the example that the that the Buddha used. Someone once asked the Buddha, "What was the difference between an?" an enlightened person, and just an ordinary person. And the Buddha used the example of what was called the two darts, dart arrow. 
And he said both the enlightened person, like a Buddha, and an ordinary person feel the pain, discomfort, all the difficulties of life. And it's like being shot with an arrow. But the enlightened person doesn't make a big deal about it. They're just, that's just what's going on, and they're not, you know, they're just in the flow with it, if you will. The ordinary person gets in a big struggle with it. It's like they take out a second arrow and shoot themselves. They get shot twice, right? So it's possible to be present in something that's, that's, uh, that's painful or, or it's also uh, we want to be the same thing. We don't want to be jerked around. So I don't say we want to in this teaching, in this practice. As we wake up more, we experience both the pleasant and unpleasant more deeply and more richly, maybe than ever. But also there's the place where the heart and the mind are just at ease in the midst of it. We're not pulled away from it. We're not aloof or disconnected. We're fully connected and engaged and not separate from it. But, but we're not jerked around by it. So when something's pleasant, we can still experience be there, but we're not just so just swept away by it. And the unpleasant also, we're able to just be more present with it, still experiencing it as unpleasant, but we don't create that extra suffering of, oh, my God, it's my knee. You can just be present and notice unpleasant, pleasant, unpleasant arising. It's quite possible. And, and anybody who's done much meditation will experience that. So what I want to say is, if any time, this is probably going to bring up a lot of controversy for people but let me, at the end, but let me just say, any time there's suffering, I'm not talking about pleasant or unpleasant, but any time there's suffering, there's some kind of grasping and clinging going on. No question about that. If you're suffering, not if you're experiencing unpleasant pleasant, but if you're suffering. In other words, if I break my leg, but I don't think it's supposed to be any other way, no big deal. It still hurts. I used to, uh, I live in Santa Cruz and commute over into, over here into the Silicon Valley area. For years, I was in hell through commuting. Hell. And I guess I'm a slow learner. It took me a long time. And finally, after years of, you know, oh, it's just ruining my life and all these hours used up, and it was, I was really suffered. Finally, at some point, and it sounds like a cliche, you know, this thing about be here now, I finally kind of got it. I thought, well, you know, it's actually not the bad. I'm sitting in the car. I can turn on music, listen to the radio, put on the news. I'm just sitting here. I have an air conditioner if it's too hot, if it's too cold. It's not bad. It's only because I'm thinking I'm supposed to be someplace else. I was creating this whole suffering in the mind. Anytime there's suffering, there's some kind of grasping and clinging. That does not mean, this is where we don't want to get the shit in, that doesn't mean that we can always, by knowing that, that we're always able to free ourselves from the grasping and clinging, and that's when we need the compassion. So we're going to, until we're fully free, we're going to have the places where we get stuck. To the extent we can fix it, we should fix it. To the extent we can't fix it and we're able to cultivate the qualities of being present and awake, we'll suffer less. And there's no should, but just to know to the extent that we're, that we're not free and we are caught up in it, we're going to suffer. Right? And, we have, and that's, as human beings, we need a lot of compassion for ourselves.
as you know, for, for, for all the suffering we do have. So, okay. Well, kind of pushed it on the time a little here, so we'll do a shorter, because uh, I'd like to end on time so people can get out on time. We'll do a shorter uh, metta practice, or you could call it a metta and loving kindness practice. We've only got six minutes, so we won't be that long. And to do this practice, there are many ways uh, to do this practice, and this will just be one style that we'll do here. And to please find a posture that's uh, as comfortable as, as you can be. You don't need to be in any fancy posture for this. And I invite you to start by just bringing your awareness, connect back in just to the experience of your being, perhaps using the breath or the body. What's going on in the body? Connect with it. Feel it. We don't have to do anything with it. We don't have to change it. And connect with the mind and the heart and just see what's going on in general. Maybe during this discussion some things have gotten stirred up or, or maybe there's things in your life or maybe you're feeling calm and peaceful. Just whatever it is to just connect with the actual experience in the moment. And to see, can, can we hold ourselves just as we find ourselves now? Just in full acknowledgement of who and what we are, can we hold ourselves with great kindness and gentleness? This is truly a practice uh, of radical self-acceptance. Can we allow ourselves to be just who and what we are and to have just this experience? And if we cannot, if that's difficult, then we need, can we develop some kindness for that, for that difficult place that's not able to allow ourselves to be? And even this simple, you know, uh, kindness towards ourselves is really the start of, of, of compassion practice, holding ourselves with great compassion. And then from within that, um, if you'd like, you can start to actually send some loving kindness to yourself, sending some metta. And there's several ways that just everybody works a little differently. Some people, it may just be just a sense of sending loving kindness to yourself. But also, we often talk about working with certain phrases, expressions that we can repeat over and over silently to ourselves. And you can find any phrase or group of phrases that work for you. I'll say a few that are some of the classic uh, traditional phrases. They're very simple. 
May I be happy. You could just repeat that over and over. And it's not so important whether you even feel the feeling. This is, is more about just the power of directing the mind. May I be happy. May I be peaceful. May I be free from inner or outer harm. May I be free from suffering. And you could just repeat these over and over. And in your own practice, you could just continue sending metta to yourself as long as you wanted. That could be your, your whole practice. But for now, uh, if you'd like, uh, I invite you to turn your awareness outwards to all the other people here in the room and to send that same metta now to everyone else. And once again, you could use some of these uh, traditional phrases if you find them helpful. Just as I wish to be happy, may everyone here be happy. Just as I wish to be peaceful, may everyone here be peaceful. Just as I wish to be free from suffering, may everyone here be free from suffering. And once again, you could continue that practice for as long as you wish. But since we need to end, let's end by expanding our awareness out beyond this building, this room, this building, and radiating out this metta to all beings everywhere in all directions, to those beings near to us and those far away, those known to us and unknown, those seen and unseen, and not just human, to, to all beings, wishing May all beings everywhere be happy. May all beings everywhere be free from suffering. And then finally, to end with this prayer, it's from the Metta Sutta, which is a discourse the Buddha gave on loving kindness. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none, through anger or ill will, wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. So good night.